morning, good morning. Once again, I apologize for doing the whole remove up to here, but for the sound purposes and recording purposes, we're going to go ahead and go with this. Michael, you can go ahead and click record. All right, good. There's a story of a man who falls over the edge of a cliff. As he tumbles down a short way, he manages to grab onto the branch of a small bush. And he's just hanging there. Looking down, he sees nothing but clouds and mist shrouding what he knows to be the jagged rocks below. Climbing back up is not an option. The cliff is way too sheer, and like me, he's no rock climber. Climbing down is even worse, and left and right just doesn't appear to be any way to get to safety. He's in a real predicament. So like most of us, he calls out for help. Anybody, anybody, is there anybody out there? Help me. God answers, I'm here. And almost immediately, the man shouts, thank God. Wait, God? Is that really you? God says, yes. The man begins immediately to make promise after promise if God will but spare his life. God says, okay, let go. Man gets a quizzical look. I'm sorry, God, I must not have heard you right. What did you say? Let go. Man thinks for a split second and starts saying again, is there anybody else out there? And while I'm using, the story highlights our tendency to rely on things, on people, anything but God. Especially true when what we hear from God is counterintuitive, when it goes against what we think the answer ought to be. And you'll notice I said what we think the answer ought to be. And likewise, if I had to guess, I'd bet we were all a little more Um, surprised about the conversation that the man had with God than the trouble that he was in. Why do I think that? Because we're pretty much all used to having trouble in our lives. The older we get, the more we come to expect to have trouble in our lives, right? There are plenty of verses in the Bible telling us to expect trouble. Over and over again in the Old Testament, the Israelites faced trouble as well. And much like we can, they sometimes fail to rely on God. Then again, sometimes they also got it right. So today I want us to look at an example of Israel coming together in a time of trouble and see what it has to teach us about where we should be putting our trust in our times of trouble. So our text this morning is going to be Psalm 20. One of the many psalms attributed to David, it was a prayer, possibly a hymn, that the people participated in with their king just before going into battle. And for those of you that know much about the history of King David, you know that he was in a lot of battles. Now, this was a corporate prayer. And that meant that everybody participated. The people prayed for their king, and then the priest or the king himself responded, and then at the end, they ended it in unison. So in a lot of ways, it's not unlike some of our responsive readings today. 
Though, as you can probably imagine, with the threat of a battle looming, the intensity was much, much greater in these cases. You see, the people understood that they were inextricably linked to the fate of their king. If the king fell, all of Israel would fall with him. So with that little bit of background in mind, what I'd like you to do is uh, we're going to look through the, the Israelites' prayer this morning, and we're going to note how they expected God to be present in their situation, how they believed he would fulfill on his promises, and they trusted God that they would be victorious in the end. Likewise, we can recognize that we also should be putting our trust in God in the same way, especially in our times of trouble. So if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 20. And you'll find that it's a little bit before halfway through the, the pages of the Bible. It's right near the middle. And then once you're there, I'd ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. This morning, I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. To the choir master, a psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy at your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save our king. May he answer us when we call. May the Lord answer, uh, add his blessing to the reading of his words. Amen. You may be seated. Earlier I mentioned this was a corporate prayer. It was used in preparation for battle. So as we begin, as we look at the beginning of this prayer, the example that it provides us tells us that in preparing for our own battles, we should call on God to participate praying for defense, praying for support, and praying for blessing. It begins by praying for defense. Starting in verse 1, and this is really easy to miss, notice how the people's prayer recognizes that King David has already been praying. They call on God to answer him and protect him. The people are calling on God to protect their king, and in some translations they, it's phrased as setting him securely on high. It's a connotation of putting him up out of the reach of harm. And while not necessarily the best image when thinking of a battle, the wording makes me imagine a little bit one of my grandmother's little figurines that she would set up on a high bookshelf so as to keep it out of the reach of little and, dare I say it, destructive hands. <laughs> and much like what's inferred at the beginning of this verse, Taking everything to the Lord in prayer should be our first response. When times of trouble are coming, we too should be praying for protection and defense. 
Psalm 28, verse 7 says, The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts him, and I am helped. Now, likewise, we should be praying for support. In verse 2, the people look to God to actively participate by sending help and support. Their plea is for help from the sanctuary, God's dwelling place with them at the time. And then they ask for support from Zion, meaning the fortress. Alternatively, it means Jerusalem, their stronghold. Today, often when we pray these days, it seems we're praying for a specific outcome, something really narrow in, in focus. And I believe we should focus as much, if not more, on asking God to actively participate in the situations we find ourselves in, supporting us as we serve him. When we ask for support in a situation, we may find that God will provide support for outcomes and blessings that we hadn't even anticipated. And yes, I said we should pray for blessing. Look at verse 3 and 4. This is really interesting. There's a pause between them, and that's what the Selah means in some of the translations. Sometimes it says pause. It provides a separation, a distinction between the two verses. And the reason for this is that the Israelites were under the Mosaic law requiring sacrifices and offerings to pardon sin. It's verse 3. In order to receive the blessings that they were asking for. Verse 4. So though distinct in action, they're actually working together as a petition for blessing. In this case, the granting of the king's desire for victory and the fulfillment of his plans to accomplish it. And while we are no longer under the burden of offerings and burnt sacrifices, we also should be seeking forgiveness and repenting of our sins and then confidently asking God to bless our endeavors as we seek to serve his kingdom. It's not only okay, but it's really good to pray for God's blessing and as we do so, fully put our trust in him to answer those prayers. Dr. Helen Rosevere, she's a missionary to Zaire, and she once told the following story. Prepare to get out your tissues. A mother at our mission station died after giving birth to a premature baby. And we tried to improvise an incubator to say, uh, keep the infant alive, but the only hot water bottle that we had was beyond repair. So we asked the children to pray for the baby and for her sister. One of the girls immediately responded, Dear God, please send a hot water bottle today. Tomorrow will be too late because by then the baby will be dead. And dear Lord, send a doll for the sister so she won't feel so lonely. That afternoon, a large package arrived from England, and the children watched eagerly as we opened it. Much to their surprise, under some clothing was a hot water bottle. Immediately, the girl who had prayed so earnestly started to dig deeper. She was exclaiming, if God sent that, I am sure he sent a doll. And she was right. The Heavenly Father knew in advance of that child's sincere request and five months earlier had led a ladies group to include both of those specific items. The little girl had prayed for God to participate 
and send support, and she did so with full belief, faith, and confidence that he would answer her prayer. When we ask God to participate in our lives, it is with the recognition that it is by his power and participation that victory is assured. Therefore, as we are praying, we should remember God's promise of victory. And he has promised us victory. When the Israelites claimed God's promise of victory, it was in battle. And it was with every recitation of this psalm. It harkens back to Deuteronomy, verse, uh, chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. There we find that God promised Israel victory in war. Specifically, the Israelites were told not to be afraid of horses and chariots, not to be afraid of the war power of their enemies, because God was with them. And now in verses 5 and 6, we see the Israelites claiming that very same promise and counting on God for their victory. And notice how the text changes from may he, all of those prior verses, to he will. It's believed that either in the middle of verse 5 or at the very beginning of verse 6, the speaker changes. This is the point at which King David or the high priest begins talking. And there is no longer the expression of the desire or petition. It's now an acknowledgment of the claim of that promise. God said he would be with them. And the king is reminding the Israelites that this is something they can count on. Victory claim. And we can have victory too. With Jesus Christ as our king, victory is already assured. When we became believers, we accepted Christ as our Lord and king and savior. We now belong to his kingdom. Jesus himself said, I told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. John 16, verse 33. We don't have to worry about the small battles, the things of this earth, because the final victory awaits us in heaven. There was a phrase that was real popular some time ago, don't sweat the small stuff, and it's all small stuff. It's also the title of a book by Dr. Richard Carlson. The thing is, there's a lot of truth to that phrase, though I would pose that it should be restated a little bit differently. I put it this way, don't sweat the small stuff, and most of it is small stuff. You see, what we need to remember is that what we fight on here on earth are the battles. And the fighting won't be over until Jesus returns. That's the small stuff. The promise of heaven, though, our victory in Christ, the victory that has already been won through his sacrifice, that's not small stuff. We must claim that victory and praise the Father in heaven for his faithfulness to that promise. Tissue time again. In 1989, there was an 8.2 earthquake that nearly flattened Armenia, killing over 30,000 people in less than four minutes. 
Surprisingly, such tragedies often bring out the best in people. And in the midst of the chaos and destruction, one father rushed to his son's school. But instead of a school, he found a shapeless heap of rubble. Imagine what went through his mind. In the case of this father, the sight of the rubble and ruin made him spring into action. He ran to the back corner of the building where his son's class used to be and began to dig. Why? What real hope did he have? What were the chances that his son would have survived such destruction? All he knew was that he had made a promise to always be there for his boy. It was a promise that animated his hands and motivated his heart. As he began to dig, well-meaning parents tried to pull him from the rubble, saying it's too late. They're all dead. You can't help. Go home. There's nothing you can do. Then the fire chief tried to pull him from the rubble, saying, fires and explosions are happening everywhere. You are in danger. Go home. Finally, the police came. And they told him, it's over. You're endangering others. Go home. We'll handle it. But this father continued to dig for eight, twelve, 24, 36 hours. Then in the 38th hour, he pulled back a boulder. And he heard his son's voice. Immediately he screamed, Armand! Back came the words, Dad? I told them. I told the other kids that if you were still alive, you would save me. You promised me you would always be there for me. And you did it, Dad. Told you tissue time. If we remember that God, our Heavenly Father, keeps all of his promises and that we've already won the war, we're better prepared to keep our trust in him during our days of trouble, during our days of waiting. And though those days may be long and the trials and troubles many, we must keep our trust in God for the outcome. Notice where the Israelites proclaim their trust and the results they believe will be the final outcome for them. In verse 7, they contrast those that trust the earthly might of the day, the horses and chariots, with their trust in God. And then in verse 8, the ultimate collapse and failure of those same people who do not trust in God is contrasted with their own inevitable success. Notice the wording in both verses. Some trust in earthly things. They collapse and fall. And then we trust in God, and we rise and stand upright. 
verse 9 acts as the sort of benediction. It's said in unison. The key here is not only are they restating their request and hearkening back to the beginning of the psalm, but they're reinforcing their faith. And we are called to have the same trust, the same faith in the same God. However, when we fail to put our trust in God and instead put our faith in the things of this earth, that's when real trouble comes. We can save money for a lifetime only to have our savings wiped out. We can exercise and eat right and live the healthiest of lifestyles. But diseases, accidents, even mental traumas can take it away in a split second. Nothing of this earth lasts nor can it protect us when trouble really does come. And worse, it can keep us from recognizing and accessing our true source of power and protection. You see, when we focus on and put our trust in and keep our trust in the one from whom all power, all blessing, all grace, and all truth really comes, that's when everything can be taken away, yet we still stand. The worst this world has to experience can be all around us. Yet we still have the peace and the, and the wherewithal to remain calm, stand upright and steadfast. No matter what the outcome of the storms of this life, we have victory. Not because we are standing, but because we are standing in him. There's a credit card company that has a memorable tagline, what's in your wallet? The inference is that having their credit card in your wallet gives you an edge. With today's technology, and I'm all about technology, we can put an entire Bible, several in fact, on a really small chip, small enough to fit neatly in our wallet. The Bible's our edge. nice thing about having the Bible is that we know how the story ends. We may not know exactly when Jesus is coming back, but we do know he's coming. If we keep our trust in the Lord, we will be standing upright. We will be the ones who rise, rising to meet him in the clouds on his return. A wise friend once told me that Jesus said his father prunes his children. The richest, fullest, most fruitful lives are those that have been strengthened through the power and painful process of tribulation. He said we have no right to think that God will use us until he cuts away whatever may hinder our growth. What we see as tragedies may only be blessings in disguise, and the very opportunities through which God chooses to exhibit his love and grace. Has the dearest in life been torn from you? Have all your dreams faded? His point is that if you could see these problems from the standpoint of God's wisdom and that of eternity, you would be able to dry your eyes and praise the Lord through all of these. Because God will not withhold any good thing from those who walk uprightly, says Psalm 84, verse 11. 
Even in your painful situation, you can trust him to do what is best. And funny enough, in all the versions of the story I began this sermon with, there's not a single one that mentions what happens to the guy hanging from the cliff. On one hand, I sort of imagine a bemused God sitting there waiting patiently as the guy eventually loses his grip and falls. Then again, I can also imagine that same guy, that same person coming around and with a serenity that passes understanding and a smile on his face, he lets go and almost silently disappears into the clouds. It's a made-up story and made up to illustrate a point. It doesn't really have an actual ending. Our lives, however, are all too real. There will be an outcome in every trial we face. Thing is, when we put our trust and where we put our trust today is just as critical as it was 3,000 years ago. We can be assured that regardless of whether the outcome is what we would want or not, the end result will be victorious. When we take the time to call on God to participate, we pray. Pray for defense. Pray for support. And yes, pray for blessing. And when we remember God's promises and give him the praise and the glory, But most of all, when we put our trust in and keep our trust in the name of the Lord, our God, for he is good. And I know you know this one. God is good. What? All the time. And all the time, God is good. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we don't have to stand on our own power. That we don't have to trust in just the fallible things of this world, however tempting it may be, that we know we can tap into your source of almighty power by trusting in you, by the faith that we have that no matter how it goes, you will work it for good. That you will prune us. That you will test us. That the troubles of this world can serve to make us more fruitful. Not for ourselves, but for you. It is that we can be better servants in your kingdom that all we have to do is trust and rely on you for the outcome. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.